I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, rather than read the first lesson in Psalm that we're appointed for this morning, I had us read the passage from Exodus and the Song of Moses that were read at our great Easter vigil eight days ago. Because ever since that night, I've just felt like I needed to preach on this scripture from Exodus. Now, this passage was appointed for the Easter vigil, of course, because God's rescue of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt foreshadowed how he would rescue us from sin through Christ. With their walk through the waters of the Red Sea prefiguring our initiation into life with God through the waters of baptism. But in addition to this, I believe this Exodus passage more deeply gives us a snapshot at what God's agenda may be for us once we come into relationship with him. In other words, how God goes about trying to change each one of us for the better. But in order for this to be apparent, I first need to provide us with some context and background To our Exodus passage. I've signified in your bulletin where the passage picked up at the vigil with the box section beginning at verse 10. And it's at that point that the Israelites find themselves in a harrowing situation to say the least. Because they find themselves trapped. With a considerably large body of water in front of them. And Pharaoh's army of Egyptians coming toward them from behind. Verse 10 says the Israelites are greatly afraid since they're in what seems like a no-win situation. And yet the Lord has them just where he wants them. But to give some background to this story, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 430 years. And for the last 400 of those years, they had been enslaved. But just a few decades before the time of today's passage, Israel had cried out to God, asking him to rescue them from slavery. Then chapters 3 through 13 of Exodus that follow tell the story of God seeking to do just that, rescue them from slavery. You may remember that God begins his operation to rescue the Israelites by raising up Moses, an Israelite who had fled from Egypt. Through a burning bush, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So come, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God convinces Moses to go with his brother Aaron to Egypt, where they explained to the Israelites there that the Lord has seen their afflictions and appointed him, appointed Moses, to seek their release from Pharaoh and to lead them eventually into a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, the Israelites are thrilled at this amazing news. They believe what Moses has said to them, and they worship the Lord in response. 
But the reality is that even though the Israelites expressed this initial belief in God, 400 years of slavery for 10 plus generations have taken their toll on them. First of all, these Israelites hardly know God. The first indication of this had come when God was commissioning Moses at the burning bush. Because Moses said to him, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What then shall I say to them, God? That's when God reveals his divine name, I am, to to Moses. So you see, after 10 plus generations of slavery, the Israelites were no longer a people who really walked with the Lord like their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Joseph had. But a second effect of being enslaved by Egypt is it would have conditioned these Israelites to be a particularly fearful people. After all, fear is what makes systematized bondage work. In order for a slave to do what they're supposed to do, they must be made to fear their master, right? And indeed, fear would have been what kept these Israelites alive. Well, it doesn't take long for this fear to manifest in this situation. After the initial excitement of Moses' promise to them wears off, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh for the first time and ask him to let God's people go. Well, Pharaoh not only refuses this request... He retaliates against the Israelites by taking away their access to straw, a necessary ingredient to make bricks. He does this without lessening their quota of bricks that they have to make as slaves. Well, just that, just Pharaoh doing that leads these Israelites' leaders to complain to Moses that that Moses has made them a stink in the eye of Pharaoh. And despite Moses trying to reassure them with further encouragement from God, we're told the Israelites would not listen to Moses anymore because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So you see, after the slightest resistance to their enslavement seemed to have blown back on them, the Israelites' fear was triggered, was employed, and they were no longer interested in being rescued. All of this is to say that the real obstacle remaining between the Israelites and freedom is their ungodly fear. Fear. Now I say ungodly fear because fear itself is not bad or wrong. God wired all humans to have the capacity to fear in order to protect us from danger. But in the case of these Israelites, this capacity, this human capacity to fear had been exploited and turned against them, used to oppress them, right? So that now that fear is what was keeping them from freedom. So the task of God in order to get these Israelites to a place where they'll cooperate with him to do what's necessary for their freedom His task, God will need to increase their trust in him. 
such that it's more powerful than their fears. And the way God famously begins doing this is by sending plagues upon Egypt through Moses. First, he turns the water of the Nile into blood, killing all the fish. Then he sends frogs. Then God sends gnats. Then he sends flies. Then he he kills the Egyptians' livestock. And then he plagues the Egyptians' bodies with boils. And, And then he has a plague of fiery hail. And then locusts. And then darkness. Is this stuff ringing a bell? Well, these plagues demonstrate God's sovereignty to Pharaoh. They show Pharaoh that God is is sovereign, but they also are for the Israelites' benefit. To demonstrate that God is more powerful than the one who is oppressing them, than Pharaoh, the one they're afraid of. Well, as each of these plagues mount, Pharaoh becomes increasingly open to letting the Israelites go. But every time it seems like he's going to, he changes his mind. The last night. That is until the final tenth plague. When God kills the firstborn child of every Egyptian. After this, Pharaoh finally summons Moses and says, you and the Israelites get out of here. And on the map on your bulletin insert, if you're a visual person, You can see where the Israelites go. They travel from Ramses to Pithom to Sukkot. But as chapter 13 verses 17 through 18 of our passage explains, the beginning of our reading today, God did not lead the Israelites by the way of the land of the Philistines up there in the northeast. That would have been the direct path to the promised land. But God chooses not to do that. For God says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and want to return to Egypt. Instead, as chapter 14 opens in our bulletin today, God intentionally directs Moses to lead the Israelites in a way that makes them appear to be lost. That's why on the map you can see kind of this little girly cue, right? Like they're wandering in order to entice Pharaoh to come after them, which he does. And this is what leads the Israelites to find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. However, I should note that this body of water that chapter 13 verse 18 calls the Red Sea is likely not the Red Sea. Likely not what we know of as the Red Sea. That is far south of Egypt. And and the Red Sea, as we know it, is a whopping 220 miles wide. Okay, so instead, the Hebrew phrase here is probably best translated as the Sea of Reeds, R-E-E-D-S, which likely refers to the papyrus reeds that grew only in fresh water. So most scholars believe the body of water that the Israelites will cross that has become known as the Red Sea uh, in, in Scripture is actually the one labeled Lake Bala on your map which is a much more reasonable size. So God's plan for the Israelites is to make them into a people who fear not people and not circumstances, but who fear God. 
Now, you may wonder why that's any better, fear, you know, fearing God. Well, the fear of God that's often referred to in Scripture doesn't mean being terrified of God. Instead, it refers to someone having a reverent obedience to God. That is, when a person's desire to obey God outweighs their fear of people or circumstances. That's what the fear of God is. A person who fears God is so convinced of the goodness of God's will and God's commands that they're confident that the consequences of disobeying that is what is most to be feared. So now that these Israelites are trapped between Pharaoh's army and the sea, God has them right where he wants them. Because you see, the Israelites trust in God is only going to grow to outweigh their fears through experience, through experiencing God's faithfulness. That's what God's orchestrating here. So by verse 10, their fear is sufficiently triggered, okay? Such that in verse 11, they say to Moses, kind of snarkily, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us out of Egypt? Is, it, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now to be fair to the Israelites, they don't know the plan. Right? They're kind of walking blind here. They don't even know what Moses knows. So Moses says to them, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. He says, because these Egyptians you see right now coming after you, this is the last time you're ever going to see them. The Israelites are going to have to practice trusting God more than their feelings. Heck, they don't have a choice here. But Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And y'all know what happens. God tells Moses to lift up his staff. The water divides and the Israelites walk through on dry land. But then the Egyptians give chase. Their chariots get stuck. And Moses stretches his hand over the sea, causing the sea to return to its normal course so that not a one of those Egyptians remained. God does for the Israelites what they could not do for themselves. Thus, the final verse says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord. They trusted in him now. And in his servant Moses. God's plan here was accomplished. Well, as fantastical as this story may seem, it is actually very instructive for us. Because to some extent, every one of us are similar to these Israelites. Both in that we have only a limited trust in God. In other words, none of us trust God fully. And there are ways that every one of us have been conditioned To live in ungodly fear. 
Indeed, a key hindrance to us becoming the people God wants to make us into, perhaps the key hindrance, is fear. Are the ungodly fears we carry. But you may wonder, well, who is this person God wants to make me into? You know, John, you're always talking about this sort of thing. But what does that look like? And it's true. Many times I've talked about God wanting to make us into our true selves. even. But I've said that without elaborating much further. Well, today I want to change that. With the rest of my time, I want to put some meat on those bones and give you some idea of what this true self of ours is like. In order to give us some idea of the ways we may be missing out on it. But what may surprise you is I'm going to choose not to describe this true self with religious language. Instead, I want to come at it through a psychological framework. There are nine characteristics of the true self, according to psychiatrist James Masterson. And I want to just list these for you first before providing a brief description of each one of them. They are number one. The capacity to experience a wide range of feelings deeply. With liveliness, joy, vigor, excitement, and spontaneity. Two, the capacity to expect appropriate entitlements, which I'll explain. Three, the capacity for self-activation and assertion, which I'll explain. Four, the acknowledgement of self-esteem. Five, The ability to soothe painful feelings. Six, the ability to make and stick to commitments. Seven, creativity. Eight, the capacity for relational intimacy. And nine, the ability to be alone. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, what is John talking about? Here he was talking about the exodus of the Israelites, and now he's talking psychology? But I believe describing the sort of people God hopes to progressively make us into using psychological descriptions may be even more valuable than using religious terminology because of its precision. Religious terminology on this front can be Really ambiguous and too easy for us to rationalize. Like, yeah, I'm that way. So let me begin to take, take each of these just one by one and add a few sentences of explanation. And, and if you don't absorb it all, don't worry. There's manuscripts in the back. First is the capacity to experience a wide range of feelings deeply. This means we can experience and express appropriate emotions when good or bad things happen, both in proportion to the significance of that experience, so we're not hugely overreacting or underreacting, and that we can do this rather than seeking to block feelings or deaden the impact of emotions with addictive behaviors and things like that. Second, is the capacity to expect appropriate entitlements. 
This simply means we have an appropriate expectation of being able to master certain things in life and of being able to experience a certain level of pleasure in life. Simple enough. Third is the capacity for self-activation and assertion. Now, this is the ability for us to identify our own unique individuality, our wishes, our dreams, our goals, and to be able to assertively express those and to do what's necessary to make those dreams a reality and to be able to defend them from others when they attack those dreams and wishes. Fourth is the acknowledgement of self-esteem. See, some people have the tendency to only see the bad side of things or to only see ways that they as individuals are deficient while remaining oblivious to the positives or the victories in their life. But see, that is a huge liability when hard times come, when we need to be able to stand in the truth that we are worthwhile individuals, whether the world acknowledges this or not. Fifth is the ability to soothe painful feelings when things go wrong or when we get hurt. But we need, to able to, we need to be able to soothe them in ways that will not lead to more painful feelings, either in the short term or the long term, which addictive behaviors do. Sixth, having the capacity to make and stick to commitments means that we will not abandon a goal or a decision when it is a good one or in our best interest. Now, seven, creativity. That may not mean what you probably think it means. This is the ability to replace old and familiar patterns of living and problem solving with new and equally more successful ones. So this would include being able to recognize when we're associating unreasonably negative feelings with, towards certain activities or situations. And then being able to cr- pursue creative ways to diffuse those negative feelings so we can instead engage with either a neutral or a positive stance toward that situation or circumstance. That's big. Well, eight's even bigger. The capacity for intimacy. Now this has nothing to do with sex. We can wrongly assume that from that word intimacy. This is the capacity to express our real self, our real thoughts and feelings, fully and honestly in a close relationship with another person. With minimal anxiety about that person either abandoning us or engulfing us, swallowing us up. And finally, ninth, is the ability to be alone. This is basically the ability to be okay without a significant other in our lives. Instead of seeking to fill ourselves up with inappropriate sexual activity or dead-end relationships. If we, that's what we do when we're not okay being alone. Have I lost you? Now, even though I'm explaining these characteristics in decidedly non-religious terms, I can say with full confidence 
that the Lord desires to bring wholeness into our lives in these ways through him. But the primary inhibitor that keeps us from developing or living in these characteristics is, guess what? Fear. Now, depending on our upbringings or backgrounds, some of us may have more fears or obstacles to living in these ways than others. And if you think about it, I'm sure those Israelites who've been enslaved in Egypt, they probably would have experienced impairment around all nine of these, right? They were so riddled with fear. But what can cause us to deal with, with fears inhibiting us from living freely in these characteristics will primarily be, number one, any traumatic experiences we've had, especially if we haven't kind of dealt with it. And two, if we experienced a lack of the fruit of, sp- of the Spirit toward us in our formative years. In other words, if those who raised us failed to consistently interact with us with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then we're probably going to be more behind the eight ball than others. But God's intention is to remove these ungodly fears that block us from living freely through working out our lives in ways that challenge these weaknesses. If we're following the Lord, we'll find ourselves encountering God-appointed risks that he'll place before us that challenge us to choose against those fears and to trust him. Not unlike the Israelites, not unlike him calling the Israelites to step out into the Sea of Reeds. And every one of these occasions is a chance for us to step into more of the freedom and blessing God intends. Or to balk. And continue to live enslaved in that way. See, we can read about God's goodness all we want. In many ways, when we read about Jesus' miracles described in the Gospels, that's probably similar to the Israelites getting to watch those ten plagues, right? But in order to really overcome their fears and to experience greater freedom in the Lord, they had to take the risk. They had to experience his faithfulness for themselves. That's how their trust in him increased. And I know many of you have experienced God working through your life like this in big ways and small ways. Heck, for some of us, just for example, just joining a life group meant facing fears around intimacy or, or pushing your limits on being able to commit to something. Whenever God's trying to draw out more of our true selves, it will often be uncomfortable for us. This is why sometimes God has to give us no choice. Just like he had to trap the Israelites. Your trap, your sea of reeds may be the task of parenting or caring for a loved one. Or career cha- a career challenge you just can't opt out of because you don't want to deal with it. I may be disclosing too much here, but I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to give up being a priest. But then I would realize that God has worked my life out in such a way that I really couldn't be anything else. In other words, there's no vocation I could turn to, right? 
And thank goodness. Praise the Lord. Because God has used that and is using the challenges of my vocation to refine me. So you see, this Exodus passage is a perfect metaphor for how God goes about trying to change each one of us for the better. Though it's a process that will never end on this side of glory. Would you believe that only three days after crossing the sea on dry land, these Israelites' fears are triggered again? Freaking out about having good water to drink? Well, of course you believe it. Because they are us. We are them. Amen.